Tonight's talk uh, is entitled, Once Long Ago. (laughs) (laughs) So there are two historical events that have defined our spiritual journey, uh, often overlooked but which orient us uh, in such a way that uh, how we go, where we go, cannot be denied. You will not be confused if you orient yourself to these two events. The first event happened 13 and a half billion years ago. And what happened at that time was that there was nothing. And then there was an explosion of something. So nothing, it's called the Big Bang. In fact, they know that it existed because it still hums in the universe. The resonance, the sound of that. And to people actually won a Nobel Prize for determining that that hum was the echo of the Big Bang 13 and a half billion years ago. Now, what's interesting about that moment, not only is the fact that it wasn't that something exploded, it was that nothing exploded into something. Okay? So the origin of the universe is nothing. And then all material life, all forms, erupted out of that nothing. Not only did that occur, but space and time were initiated in that moment. In fact, I had a, I, I love physics. I know nothing about it except that I love it because it has so much wonder in it. And I was um, attending uh, a renowned physicist's uh, lecture. And he said, you can't say that the Big Bang happened anywhere but here because all of space was created in that instant. So it's not as if it happened trillions of miles away in some distant location and then all of us, then the universe has, the material expanded into this space called the universe. No, it created the space as it was expanding. Isn't that interesting? And yet we take the assumptions of space and time to be just matter-of-fact things that we just take take them as standards, don't we? And so, but the point I want to make, not so much as the space and time focus, it has to do with the fact that all of the things that we see here began as nothing. Energy converted itself into material, into mass, through the ongoing explosion of stars and the formation of galaxies and the world systems. So that was 13 and a half billion years ago. 
Now come up 10 billion years, something happened here on this planet three and a half billion years ago. It was back when the Earth was in its formation stage, when the galaxy as we know it, when the solar system as we know it was in its formation. The sun, I think, was probably younger and perhaps new star. And in some oozing pool of molten sulfuric acid or whatever was back there, life began. Now, the interesting thing about this historical incident is that it didn't begin in a number of pools located all over the earth within a proximate time zone. It happened once. Time began once. And it has not initiated a new beginning since. So everything that we see in plant, animal, among us, the leaves, the grasses, flowers and plants, and all moving species, had its origin in that moment three and a half billion years ago. And then it, through modification over time, we get the grasses and the humans And the reason they know that is because they can do genetic synthesis and see that grass has 50% of the genetic material that a human being has. And therefore you know that the common origin was the same. And the more evolved apes, such as chimpanzees, etc., have 98% of the genetic material that humans have. So you get a sense that there was a common time when everything was together in which the inanimate, in some mysterious way, became the animate. Life took form. Life took form. And in that instant when it was a single organism, there was... All, everything was contained. All of life as it has generated in terms of its adaptations and evolutions started in that single whatever it was. Amoeba, protozoa, some, some one-celled thing. And so the common heritage of all of life, has, there was a common denominator of all of life. In fact, it was a whole number. It wasn't a fraction. It was a whole number. And then, as this single cell creature divided and those divided uh, single cell creatures climbed to other pools, they were under different levels of stress, different forms of tension, and they evolved according to their needs to adapt to whatever it is that the stimuli that were coming in at that time. And that adaptation... Uh, developed differently for the different creatures as they moved throughout the systems. And over three and a half billion years, we now look and see the variety and differentiation that has occurred again and again and again 
through those adaptations, through that adaptation. Now, I'm going to come ahead again to about three million years ago. So we were out 13 and a half billion years. Then we came into three and a half billion. Now we're at three million. Moving throughout the world was this display of a hominid called Lucy that came to Seattle. Lucy was about three feet high, very hairy, stood upright, walked on two feet. And when you look at her, she doesn't quite look human, but she doesn't look other than human either. She looks very much as a link towards what we are. Now, the interesting thing about Lucy is not only that she walked bipedal and erect, but that she lived in community. And they think that she may have had primitive tool usage. Very primitive. Now, somewhere along that line, and I don't know if it happened at Lucy's time or further up the evolutionary scale, but a new adaptation occurred, which was extraordinarily important for our species. And that is the adaptation for abstract thinking. Suddenly, we could think of what we wanted to do ahead of actually doing it. And we could plan and we could construct in our minds abstractly what needed to be done. And from that abstract thinking came all the tool usage of our of of that time and all the language, etc. Then words were tied to the thinking so that they could denote specific utility for certain things. Now that's fine. And the value of that is that it allows the community to flourish and to grow in its ability to construct. Right? So now we are no longer working within the confines of just the limitation of our own organism with the environment, but we could construct things from our ability to think about uh, from there. And the world of of our species began really from that because not only did it allow us to do construction externally, it also gave us a subjective experience internally. Once language, stay with me on this, we get more specific. We come down to you. (laughs) You Stay with me. So, in, in this abstract world of construction, but suddenly when you have a tool, you have a tool user. Hmm? When you have an idea, you have the creator of that idea. And so as the world profited from our uh, externalization and abstract thinking, we took on the form and, uh, uh, and uh, figure of self. Now, the form and figure of self 
uh, is almost concurrent with developing language. You can't have this without having that. When you can't see something specifically in its utility, specific for your use, without having you that needs that use. So those two arose together. Those two arose together. And this we're talking about millions, perhaps millions of years of evolution. And so the I concept became an adaptation within our species. And I think, if you look around, that some other mammals also have a very limited sense of that subjective experience as well. In fact, I saw uh, one of the great apes. Uh, they were, you know, one of those ones they've taught to have sign language and speak through sign language. Just amazing. So they have the ability to communicate and also recognize himself. You hold a mirror up to them, they recognize that as themselves. So they have the ability. It may not be quite as formed, I don't think it is, as ours, but they still have that, they're on the edge there of a primitive use of that subjective experience. My wish for them is that they go no further. (laughs) Because it now becomes our own enemy. You see, because at one point you see the lion and you work out an escape route from the lion because you also see a tree and you try to put as much distance between yourself and that beast as you can by climbing up the tree or developing a spear or bow and arrow or some way to fight off and defend yourself against that lion. Then as the evolution occurred, we had pretty much developed the command and power to form complete security and we kept the lions at a very, very safe distance to the point where there aren't any more lions. But that hasn't stopped our adaptation of thinking about each other as potential threats because we are geared to thinking about life in terms of threat and safety from our genetic history. Now this abstract thinking begins to change and modify so that Once I have subjective thought about me, I also have what's important to me now is differentiating within the species myself from you. It's not good enough just to be a part of the same species, the human race. I have to differentiate myself. I have to see myself as being special so that my subject experience becomes contrasted and evaluated by how I and the society evaluates you and me together. Now I'm on this whole sense of proportion and evaluation and comparison and judgment and all of that. Now what's important about this particular adaptation is that at this time, in this particular form, what becomes important to me is appearance. Right? Your appearance versus my appearance. And we don't have to look very far from our magazine covers to see that we have focused as our definition on the appearance of things. And appearance has a tremendous importance to us. Tremendous importance. It's the place where our evaluations and judgments can 
solidify. Now remember, now that we have a subjective experience, we no longer have a whole number. Remember that for a long period of time during this adaptation, each of the species that adapted didn't adapt a subjective experience. So they didn't think of themselves as being differentiated from. And they remained a whole number. Now we have a subjective experience where I can compare myself to you and suddenly the denominator, the common denominator is lost in the numerator. The numerator becomes the satisfaction. It becomes the place where I put my emphasis because that's where I can differentiate, that's where I can separate, that's where I can distinguish myself from the rest of the species, from the rest of humanity or from just my neighbor. And a tremendous emphasis is placed on focusing in on the numerator of life, the fraction, not the common denominator. We've lost contact with the common denominator. When we look at somebody, we don't even see what's common anymore. We don't see, we can't commune with nature and feel the commonality with it, for the most part. We see it as a distinguished leaf well, that is a dandelion. That is a rose. We have lost the ability, for the most part, to feel the common harmony, the common denominator, that where life started, that which held all of life in that certain moment three and a half billion years ago. And we have differentiated to such an extent that we have created... More a, a smaller and smaller corridor of ourself to thrive. Because to differentiate, I have to specialize and I have to be different than you. But I have six billion people at me, so I have to keep finding a smaller corridor that I can claim my own for my uniqueness. Now, it isn't that the common denominator is lost. It's just that we haven't focused on it. And we haven't focused on it for generations, way back. So we have a lot, again, of genetic history in which we have focused in on one aspect of life, missing all the rest. And appearance has become the overriding issue, as I mentioned. Now, it's not that... um, Again, that the common denominator is lost, but it's not contained in the numerator fraction. And the only way, because our mind is adapted to just seeing the form and differences and comparison and evaluation, that's what this organ has adapted from that, the evolution of all that time. This organ has adapted. But the, that which is still here, that which has not changed, has not adapted, that common denominator, that which is below the fraction line, which holds all life, and has not changed, remains. And there's a different organ in our system that knows that but it cannot be found through further abstraction. And since this tool is the tool that we have used over and over again 
to distinguish ourselves, to find our self-importance, to do all the things that we um, feel very proud of having done, our accomplishments and everything, all of it has come above the fraction line. And all of it has come from a misguided understanding that our appearance represents us fundamentally. But since there is the knowledge that we are essentially common to one another, we try to hold, when we get to know someone, as we get to know them, we try to hold their attention to our appearance because we're afraid that if they scratch below our appearance, they'll see something that we're afraid that they will see, and that's our emptiness, our common denominator. And so what we do is that glamour, appearance, all just it's to make the light so bright that a person's gaze will stop at that superficial level. And if you think about intimacy, you see, everybody wants it because they know somehow that we're more connected than we have taken ourselves to be. And intimacy is a journey into that connectedness. But not very far after the appearance level, even to the most well-established couples, an enormous fear arises if they get too vulnerable or too or too indistinguished within that intimacy. And they pull out and turn away from it. And I'm sure that all of us have had that example of, you know, okay, enough of that. Enough of that group stuff or that processing or that or having to share myself, you know, enough of that. I'll pull back out here and be the person I, I want to be the, I'll be the meditation teacher. And so the emptiness, the common denominator that we know is there, inherent, inherent in us, is feared now. Because we have placed so much emphasis on the differentiation, on the numerator, that we fear the denominator. We fear the denominator will take away where what we have invested in. And so we stay away from it. We stay, we avoid it deliberately. So what is the fraction line? And I mentioned this the other night. The fraction line is the conversation, the continual noise we create to keep us from, because if we're quiet, we slip down into this thing. And like we come out drunk, fearful, terrorized or something. And so I have more to say. And we chatter our way. We create the fraction line through our chatter. And that way we can stay very nicely because Anytime a consciousness starts moving down, it hits the chatter and springs back forth with its ideas and its philosophies and its intellectualization and on and on, right? And that's why when we sit down in quiet, there is this line, this demarcation, where we can't get quiet. And yet there's the yearning, and this is the spiritual journey, Please understand this. The spiritual journey is to get from the numerator to the denominator. Now, how far can the denominator be from us? (laughs) We've created the fraction line. 
And the way we decide to do this is through the way a numerator numerates. Is that is through further differentiation, its effort, its power, its control, its influence, its whatever. So we try to numerate our way into the denominator. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, we're creating more fractions. But it's a spiritual fraction, right? So I decorate with beads and and sing and chant and, and do all the other things, but I'm still differentiating. You get the you get the you get the sense of what what the see and we have decided because we have created the um, fear from our sense of evolution that there are still lions out there to devour us. We have a series of boundaries, each with its fraction line, and those boundaries are held in place through our resistive conversation and and our um, aversive response, which is really our tension in our life, which is just conversation, which is just a, another expression of language. And so we have continued to create smaller and smaller chambers that hold us greater and greater fractions the fraction line, we have many fraction lines above the denominator divide, division. We have a sense of ourselves being separate from other organisms. That's a fraction line. We have our sense of ourselves being separate from the body. The body and mind are fractured. That's a fraction line. And even within the own, our own minds, we have a fraction line where there's part of us that is the persona we like and the part of us is the shadow we don't like. And so there's another fraction line. And we keep a deliberate, aversive response, a hold, a tightness, a tension on each of those, at each of those points. Now, it's not that this isn't... um, it's not that it's wrong. It's just that it's confused. If you've seen a child born, a child is often born undifferentiated. They don't know their body from the, or, from the external. They just, they're floating. And they don't have any sense of themselves as being separate from another. When they need something, they cry. There, there's a manifestation of just a natural organism, undifferentiated natural organism. However, that you have the child has, must, if it's going to survive in a culture, become differentiated. You can't live like that and make it through the workday world. Yeah. So what we have to do is train a child to be differentiated. And that's not that's what you have to do in order for them to be socialized into the culture. And then at a certain point, they may wake up to the pain of that differentiation and seek a way to come to the common denominator. 
of themselves. That's the journey. Now it's interesting because there are certain times in life when that journey is very recognizable. One of them is at time of death. Because at time of death, your fraction lines are being removed. You aren't more differentiated. You're less differentiated. You can't do the things you used to do. You can't claim the image you used to claim. You don't have the power you used to have. All the areas that we forced that very clear line of demarcation begins to erode and become permeable. And when that happens, the person has an opportunity, as Randy was mentioning last night, to really do some very quick work across that final fraction line to the common denominator of their existence. And as I was working with people, uh, and it would be the rare person that this would happen, but nevertheless it would and could happen, that I would say to them, you know, everything has been taken away from you. Your health, your status, whatever. I say, what, what is undiminished? What has not been taken away? Now, you see, what that does is it eliminates, they have to look to see if there's something common there that cannot or has not been subtracted or added onto and could not. And sometimes they can come to that common denominator and die from there very quickly. But those of us who are here are very um, stuck within certain of our appearances. There's no question. Our job, our security, our financial, all of it our appearance, everything. And it doesn't matter whether it's a positive or negative evaluation. We're stuck in it either way. Now, Buddhism, in its essence, is about seeing through appearance. That's what it's supposed to do. And it does this by showing that all appearances change, right, and come and go. So why are we going to invest in something that is only going to be around a little while. And so why put, our, why, why put our chips on something that's eroding right in front of our eyes? Or it shows us that there is pain associated with the attachment to these things. That as we try to hold on to them and they evolve into something else, it leaves us feeling um, like we have been... Uh, like our like our value system has been threatened, like what we what we thought we were has been uh, jeopardized. And so Buddhism, the aim of Buddhism, is to get us to look beyond the fraction, the numerator. That's that's his point. To stop taking appearances as being the end all and be all of our existence, all form. But we've invested so much into it. We, we really hold on like a struggling child to this world of form. Because we're so afraid if that's removed, there's nothing left for us. Now think back 
You see, I believe that everybody's, the cells in everyone's body resonate from 3.8 billion years ago. I think that each of our cells, each of the, 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 the very aliveness in itself, that which has not changed, which cannot be diminished, what cannot be added or subtracted to, still lives in full glory and has a resonance with us. When we become quieter, which means what? We are forming fewer boundaries between ourselves and others, which also means that there's less noise and therefore less differentiation. So as this thing, as we start dropping the significance of the upper part of the fraction, we think automatically and we start resonating with the lower part, the common denominator. And you can feel it. You can feel it in your hearts. Can you not? When we're quiet. And many of us get very excited about that possibility and want to know how to get more of it, which throws us back up into the numerator. Partially because we have to learn the mechanics of the denominator, which are very different laws, a very different system of laws and strategies than the numerator has. The numerator works through personal power. The denominator works through relaxation and ease. And that's why the inclinations of the numerator will never take us to the denominator. But nature will. Because nature, remember 13 and a half billion years ago, everything was. And so as we quiet down and resonate in harmony with all things, we find ourselves less separate, less isolated, less defined, more spacious because the denominator is vast. The numerator is isolated and alone and corridored. The denominator is vast. So as we move from the top to the bottom part of the fraction, this thing gets vast. In fact, it gets as vast as the universe. So what does meditation look like? You see, what does right, wise meditation look like when we are operating in accordance to this direction? When we realize that all everything that we have created from this upper part of the fraction isn't going to ever serve me or give me satisfaction and we long for the, the dominator, what does meditation look like? Right? It looks like We have to use the denominator. We have to denominate everything. If we numerate everything, we just create more and more of a fraction. So give me any problem you have and I'll tell you its resolution. Bring it down to the denominator. Don't differentiate it. 
That's the end of problems. But from the differentiated individual self, solving the problem is its own, has its own empowerment. And so from our, from that strategy, from the upper part of the fraction, when I have a problem, I have to solve it. I have to resolve it. I have to get over it. That's where we get our power. That's where we get our sense of usefulness, our sense of being productive, our sense of meaning. You see? But not the denominator. And so we're challenged on whether we're going to be problem solvers in meditation and further differentiate. And some of you have been with the teachers and teachers that have differentiated you into almost, I can't find you anymore. The fraction is one trillionth over... Well, we can do nothing about it, which is total impotence and total powerlessness, total vulnerability, total innocence, and you feel worthless when you denominate a problem. When you bring a problem down to denominator, you have no personal power in that at all. None. And you can see why it's so difficult to do, can't you? And you can see why we rail at it. Why we're so impotent. None of us. That's the worst thing in the world for a numerator. Because that's worse than nothing. That is digging our own grave psychologically. That's how strong we have to be here. We have to know where we're going. And we have to be confident in that knowing. And we have to understand that the differentiation has only come from my idea, from a, from a subjective experience. That when I look at it, there is no one there. Once you, we discover that there is no one there, it's a pretty easy task to find the denominator because I'm not going to pretend anymore to be somebody. Many of us want to bypass that and get right down to the denominator. But you can carry yourself with you down there. And there's nothing worse than being a numerator in a denominator space. You start dying. You die. One part of you pulls you towards it. Another part of you is a revulsion of it. And the work isn't finished. And the work is the understanding of what this thing is called me. And acting in alignment with the strategies of the denominator, which is what? Being quiet to things. So what does a meditation, a denominator-led meditation look like? Whatever arises is perfectly fine. 
don't react to it as something that's fearful. Or you send it up into something that has a particular and isolated entity in itself that's problematic. You send it up into the numerator. If you do nothing with it, it stays, it comes, and begins to fold back into all of life. And what is the essence of all of life? Zero. Where the Big Bang started. We return to the zero. See, it never really happened. We can still go prior to the origin of all things. We can still go back one second before 13 and a half billion years ago. We can return to that. Some of us try to return through the hum of the echo, the ohm of the echo. But even that has to be dropped. So that the wind blows and it blows right through. It blows on nothing. It blows through emptiness. And then the awareness manifests as everything. Infinite. No longer isolated or pitted against anything. Nothing special being made out of anything. And the question that the meditator sits with is not what is this thing, this emotion, this idea, this physical sensation, but what holds that. What it is, is the numerator. What holds it is the denominator. What looks out of your eyes? What sees out of your eyes? Not what do you see. What you see is the fraction. But what sees? And we can't consider ourselves to be a fraction and work our way into a whole number. We have to know that we're a whole number. And release the need to be a fraction. A fraction can never be a whole number. But a whole number can be a fraction.
And when we realize that the fraction line is nothing more than the tension, we assert to keep everything known to us, then there is a delight in not knowing. A delight in being the big bang prior to the explosion. Where all the energy has moving through a single atom. So these are the historical events on which our fraction, on which our spiritual journey is based. They're actual historical events. You can't dispute them. They're scientific. (laughs) What do they say to us about who we are? What does it say when nothing became something? What does it say when all of life was in a single cell? Why are we so dense around that? It seems so obvious, doesn't it? How could we lose the consciousness that was once undivided simply by dividing the appearance over and over and over again? You could divide this room up endlessly, but the space that holds it all could never be divided. The consciousness that was infused at that moment of creation could never be divided. In fact, it remains undivided within all things, holding all things. You see? Thank you. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.